Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Welcome, everyone, to Happy Path Programming. Um, I'm James. I guess we said that in the intro. We don't need to say it again. No, but we today don't. we have with us Julie, who we've known for many Just years. Just Julie. Just Julie. <laughs> no last name needed. <laughs> Too confusing. Um, so we, what is, what is your last name now? Julie Amundsen. That's my name. Amundsen. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's funny. You know, we, we see each other in person and I really don't know most people's last names. It's just, just first, first name. I guess it's good to be on a first name basis. Well, I guess I can tell you worse than that. Um, I've been virtual, you know, working for a year and, um, you know, people are starting to come back to the office. And I saw some people that I had had video calls with and I was used to reading the boxes and I'm like, I don't remember which one you are. (laughs) It's going to be an adjustment going back to non, non uh, digital life where we, you know, it is nice to have people's names at the bottom of the screen and bottom of their see now if your google glass did that i would totally have those i i could come across (laughs) as the friendliest person in the world if i knew everybody's name oh Oh, hi bob great to see you how are the wife and two kids one of them just (laughs) had a birthday didn't they data screen on your on your glasses just read it off although they say that google maps is making us stupider and, huh. and now Julie just told us that Zoom made us stupider. Yeah, it's, it did. It's just co-evolution. Yeah. There you go. That way to put a positive spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julie, uh, it's great to have you. And so you were beginning to tell us about what you were researching when Bruce and I saw you in person many years ago out in the Bay Area. So what was that again? Um, it's called uh, a framework called active inference. Um, and I think folks who are familiar with reinforcement learning, you could probably draw an analogy where you have this um, agent that has uh, some sensors and it is kind of actively exploring its environment and really trying to learn the structure of the world and the dynamics of the world, um, kind of like a baby would. And then it kind of sort of builds up its own um, network and starts to seek reward, like, hey, I don't want to be cold right now, or I'm hungry. Um, and so this, there's a huge body of research um, by Carl Friston and a number of others that we were following. And really wanted to implement uh, this as a practical uh, real world agent that we could put into perhaps embodied cognition like a robot or something. And um, good progress made on a demo, but uh, unfortunately the the second round of funding did not come in. So it's, it's temporarily shelved right now. So are you telling me that those guys who did the juice in a bag with the weird blender they could get a whole bunch of money but your ai research couldn't <laughs> yeah let's squeeze the spend four hundred dollars so you could squeeze the juice well i mean i'll say between 2015 and 2017 there was kind of a a shift in terms of the the bar you had to meet to get funding um i think our problem was we needed a couple years few years to really dig down into the research and VCs want to see a business model right away. So, you know, maybe we could have, you know, tried to figure out how to collaborate more with universities or get some kind of grant. That would probably have been a good good route to go. Mm-hmm. So you had started, um, I mean, this was a startup that you and a partner were doing. Yes. Right. And how long did you go before you decided to start down? Um, until my own bootstrap angel funding started to run out. So it was started, we started in, let's see, 2014. And then by late 2017, I was like, I don't think I can fund this anymore, like self fund this anymore. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a bummer. It does seem like the, the neural networks are kind of been the, the craze for a while, but, but they don't, they don't really like, they're not actual cognizant things like they don't actually learn they don't learn from their environment they don't imagine no and and so there's they're missing a whole part of what human cognition is all about right 
Yes. And um, this is really the difference between what I was working on and machine learning, right? Machine learned models are really attempting to, um, you know, build a model of some like high dimensional, uh, you know, space um, where the, the real or actual like shape of it is not known. And it can only be inferred by looking at a bunch of examples, you know, trying to pinpoint. Um, the problem there is that the shape of the world changes, right? There's dynamics. So like once you learn, um, you know, from a given data set, you know, next week, the data set might actually shift. So, you know, we kind of fake that a little bit. Um, because it's just a model. All it is is a model, right? It's like a model. Um, and I guess maybe, you know, from, from a software engineering perspective, like the analogy I love is to give is that it's basically like you write code that writes other code given some data, right? And so yep. if you think about how hard it is to um, test the software system where you directly wrote the code that's performing some action in production. We're not even like good at doing that. So adding another level of indirection as well as this kind of, you know, this data set <laughs> that has to come from somewhere. So huh. it's, it's, that's why it's so hard. Yeah. I learned so much about science by that that one um, WTF where we had the hack. Was, the theme was machine learning, and James mostly did the work. But anyway, our we were I, we just I did. did. Some, yeah, I think so. We just did some kind of coin toss thing. Didn't huh. work very well. But my understanding over the next few years of what science was, you know, because. I, I had studied physics as an undergraduate and I had gotten really stuck in particular when the, the professor would write an equation and then he would start throwing away higher order terms. And I'm going, it, you know, the equal sign says it's an equation. You can't be throwing away parts of an equation. I had no, you know, no understanding that his first, you know, his initial equation was just guesses at how the world would work and then they say oh you know does it does it fit do these terms make it you know now i totally get that but i had to have that experience with the machine learning exercise before it really started to make sense and now, they're both just trying to create models exactly that, that look that appear right <laughs> that appear right and and to the and the the limitations of the human are that well i got to be able to you know, fit these in my head. I have to be able to make sense of these pieces in my head. The machine learning thing is like, no, it doesn't care. All it has to do is go, uh, does it fit the data? And ideally, is it predictive? And that's true with both of those models. And of course, with the machine learning data, as Julie says, well, the data that you have doesn't necessarily show changes. So how do you, how, is that what you were working on was, was how to, incorporate the changes in the environment? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I guess a typical mainstream machine learning model, like a neural network or even like a simple linear model, um, really just has this uh, training data set. It just has um, a whole bunch of inputs and then a label, and the label is what's the right answer. And from that data set, uh, the model needs to kind of infer what correct answers would be given some other, you know, inputs. Um, and so, you know, the problem is like, I mean, we could take an example around, let's say, you know, Netflix streaming, like if you're trying to predict, um, you know, hey, do we think that somebody's going to enjoy a particular movie? Well, you know, things can change over time. The catalog of available titles can change over time. The seasonality can change. Like we don't, you don't want to recommend the Christmas movie in July, um, different patterns and tastes around the world. So just sort of saying, oh, we did it once and now this is the correct answer for all time um, isn't actually going to work. Right. And my mood could change. And you don't necessarily track that, even though I might start watching particular kinds of things your algorithm might not catch that and say, right. oh, he's in, he's looking for comedies now. So let's, I mean, it seems to, but, right. but I don't think it takes. Mo models are static and, and we create them and then we have to then recreate them 
and see like, okay, do these fit. But it sounds like what you were working on was a more dynamic learning. Yes. And so um, what I was working on before um, would actually continuously, like actually on a certain sort of cadence or time step, let's say every 10 milliseconds, take a sample, right? Maybe it has, you know, like a heat sensor or a light sensor and it's continually taking a sample and um, there are some machine learning models that try to uh, model sort of sequences over time, um, but they don't always do it in a continuous fashion. So there's these sort of things called LSTM, long-term, short-term memory. It's been a while since I studied them, so don't ask me to explain them. Um, but so there are certain um, machine learning models that take account sequences, but what I was working on would continuously sample and update it's representation of the possible transitions and the possible sequences like, you know, oh, I need to walk down the hall to get to the fridge. And then uh, it would be able to respond to, hey, the fridge actually moved, you know, to a different location and I need to update my policy um, to go to this other location, right? So those are some examples. And that doesn't even take into account things like, well, your sample rate might be limited by your machine capacity, but if you don't sample fast enough, you can lose valuable data. Like imagine you had a village and you get you were getting data from that village and you sampled once a day and then you'd you know you get it when the sun is right overhead or something right. like that. And so so it would seem like that's a constant factor when actually Exactly. Because- so that does matter and so you do need that sample rate to kind of match uh, to be able to observe um, the changes in the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's cool so what you're saying is it's a really hard problem it is <laughs> uh, un- not not fully solved um but i think that that progress is being made um it's been a little while since i paid attention to the updates in that space um but i'm sure i'll come back to it someday it seems like most of the energy is still kind of in neural network um, yes. development yes um A lot of neural network, um, I mean, I think now it's kind of this renaissance of, oh, this problem that we solved, you know, maybe with logistic regression in the past, could we improve on it with a neural network? Um, So, like, in terms of the technology stack, like, we really are seeing this flourishing of the Python ecosystem. So, like, the the news of the day is really TensorFlow and PyTorch as like dominating um, frameworks, you know, for doing neural networks. Yeah. One of the, one of the tensions or the, the challenges um, at Netflix is like Netflix has many uh, years of practice at operating uh, the service at scale on Java, the JVM. And, at the same time, the machine learning libraries are really being built up in um, Python. Okay, yeah. And so we're doing a lot um, of investment on like, how do we, for example, do sort of the upstream data pipelines to get the data to the model um, in the JVM. And actually Scala is popular because of Spark. And then downstream of that, apply um, Python to, to, so that we can take advantage of you know, TensorFlow and PyTorch. Yeah. It's, and all the people who've learned machine learning, and that's the language they know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And actually, I'll say there's two, and, and this kind of, Bruce, I think this gets into one of your topics that, that you're interested in, which is organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really kind of, you know, two main types of machine learning practitioners at Netflix. Um, one is actually called algorithm engineers. And these folks are software engineers um, who are also ML experts. So they kind of span the spectrum um, of, you know, kind of the research of, of new new ideas, perhaps even new, um, you know, sort of modeling techniques, all the way to, hey, this model needs to run, and if it and if it doesn't run, then you know, either the Netflix page won't get uh, shown, or maybe a degraded experience will be shown. So they're kind of in the hot seat there, and they're all about personalizing the member experience. So usually all the things you see in the page, like which movies you get recommended and which rows kind of show up on the page, 
that's really their realm. Um, and then we also have um, data scientists. Um, and data scientists have like pretty diverse scientific backgrounds. Like if you look at their LinkedIn profiles, like some of them have a PhD in physics, some of them in like economics or cognitive neuroscience. So there's kind of a- They're mostly variety, good at math. Yeah, a variety <laughs> of backgrounds. Um, and they're expected to be like subject matter experts, domain experts. And they come in with, you know, whatever tools are gonna get the job done. And usually that's either on Python or in R. And so they work on a whole bunch of problems that you don't end up seeing in the Netflix product. So things like, um, you know, helping, there, there's kind of this um, long-standing tradition um, in the entertainment industry of equipping like creative executives um, with uh, data around like, hey, how well might this given show or movie do on the service? So like, you know, one of the, one of the areas is how can we improve on that with machine learning? Um, there's also a number of fascinating problems in the studio space. So um, things like, you know, how do we scout out shooting locations and kind of like compare a cost curve or um, how do we optimize like the shooting schedule with all of the talent that has to come together all the way to like, um, you know, hey, once we've uh, actually made the content we're about to launch it like is the localization quality the quality of like the subtitles and the dubbing is that great hmm. and then once we get it launched there's things like how do we make sure that you have the best quality video on your network which varies across the globe with minimal interruptions so um all this to say data scientists and algorithm engineers kind of have different types of problems some of which are more visible than others, and they use different technologies. Yeah, some of those sound like operations research kinds of things, like like uh, aligning, you know, all of the talent and where you're going to do it and when you're going to do it. Sounds like an operations. It's like logistical, yeah, mm -hmm. like uh, the stuff that FedEx is, is kind of thing. so much time yeah. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, hopefully it's not it's like that optimization not and, and be complete. <laughs> yeah that's fun it seems like there's a lot of fun fun problems to work on there so mm -hmm. yeah and and in my focus really has been on the platform that's supporting um and, and for the last several years it's mostly focused on the data science side and now i'm kind of widening my perspective to also the algorithm engineering side because mm. um, we used to kind of think of these two as like oh there's two different worlds we have the java world and the python world and really as um, actually, as neural networks become more popular, for example, the, like we need to actually think more um, broadly about bringing these tech stacks together and, and less um, in terms of like two different worlds. Interesting. Mm. It's funny. It doesn't seem like the programming language should be that big of a... It, it shouldn't make a world... You know, it's, it, it's, it says how much that limits your thinking. If, yeah. if they're in two and, different worlds. Well, maybe I should expand on those a bit because I think it's it goes beyond, it's not really about the programming language. I think it's really oh, around the, ecosystem. the infrastructure that yeah. ecosystem, right? So um, if let's, so in again, in Netflix case, the, the actual applications, let's say behind the play button or that serve the page are all in Java. And, you know, you think about, well, what do you need to do to scale a system, right? Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, for example, you know, even things like JVM performance, right? Garbage collection, JVM tuning, tuning. Kind of um, all the way to like, oh, how do we build all the right, like logging and monitoring and testing infrastructure? And so once you get beyond the, the language, now there's like all of these other pieces on top of that. Um, and so there's a lot of leverage in reusing that. Um, and then when it doesn't exist on the other side, you go, oh, wow, we're going to have to spend years, um, you know, really making this work. Right. Yeah. Um, and then not to mention, you think about an organization where, hey, we've hired a lot of people who are good, um, you know, working on the, the JVM. And, um, you know, they have really deep expertise in like high scale operations. Right. And so how would that look? Um, you know, in Python. So I think it's more, it's more a question of like, when is it um, useful to use uh, which technology? 
So one of the ways that we do think about it is um, because much of the data is coming from these live applications, like, you know, what are you actually as a member doing on the Netflix page? What are you watching? Um, the Doing sort of all of the, um, you know, sort of feature engineering pipelines makes a lot of sense on, on the Java side, but then um, doing the training of the model, because that's where these modeling frameworks are, makes a lot of sense on the Python side. Is there, and like with TensorFlow, can't, can't you create the models with say Python, but then serve the model with Java or something? They're, the models are somewhat portable with some of the technologies? I mean, yeah, iTorch, I mean, it's a little but... bit more um, duct tapey. <laughs> that's a technical term on the back end because so te what you tend to do is you'll build a docker image um that runs the tensorflow model and then you end up calling that from your java service yeah so yeah interesting yeah. so the actual model goes into the docker container or is it stored in some yeah. file system yeah i mean so you know um well we have we have a little bit more sophisticated publishing mechanisms where there's this whole notification system and yes it'll the the model itself um in some cases is actually published let's say to s3 and the docker container picks it up um i actually don't intimately know the details so I, but i'm gonna guess they probably don't bake it into the docker image so you're saying okay so you write the model in python and all the supporting things and you stick that in docker and then how do you communicate with that Docker unit? Is that? And, uh, well, and, and I'll say like. Okay, yeah, so it's like and, a microservice. Yeah, so, and, and I'll say there's a couple different modes um, because, you know, in some cases it's actually pretty expensive to uh, what we call score the model live, which is you're actually, um, not only sort of generating um, the features, but also calling the model. Um, that can be expensive or cause too much latency in some cases. Um, and instead of um, doing that, for some cases, we want to pre-compute a whole bunch of scores like, oh, we have you know, this many uh, members and we, we're going to generate um, your prediction all at once and then it's ready for you right when you come. So that there's this sort of version of caching or, or bulk scoring that happens. We seem to have lost James. We seem to. I just <laughs> sent him a text in case he hasn't noticed that he's <laughs> dropped off. But uh, yeah, well, huh. you know, you know technology. Funny, I was worried my internet wasn't going to be good. Um, so I, I'll just do a quick sidebar because maybe you have some good stories around this. Um, I, I actually gave a talk um, to Yao Data in Australia Tuesday night. Oh. Um, I was worried that my internet wasn't going to work well because I had been having problems. So I planned to go to the office. And then um, as I was leaving, I filled up my water bottle in the refrigerator. And then I heard this like whooshing sound, water coming out of somewhere. Uh, and then I was like, well, that's weird. Maybe it's refilling, right? Go away. Um, come back a minute later, and there is an ominous puddle forming under my refrigerator. And at this point, it's about 10 minutes before I'm supposed to sign on to do my tech check. Um, anyway, so long story short, I had to pull out the refrigerator um, because I was trying to go outside to, to shut off the water. And, um, you know, usually you open up the, the, the cement um little things on the sidewalk to, to get to the water valve. All I found in there were cockroaches. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, water's rushing out of my fridge. I have a talk in a few minutes. Uh, I can't turn the water off. So uh, the best I could do was point the fridge out the garage and the water was streaming down the, the driveway. Um, the neighbor luckily was called in and he figured out because I, ha I have a landlady and she called the neighbor. Um, so we got the water shut off just in time. I got into my talk and it was all good. Wow. <laughs> and it was quite dramatic. But yes, a little bit of hair raising. You were probably very energized by the time you gave your talk. Right. Full of adrenaline. Um, anyway, I just uh, for fun, do you have any, James or Bruce, any fun like last minute talk drama stories? Yeah. Probably the worst thing that happened 
oh, I'm sure there were worse things than this, but most memorable was I was, this was years ago, I was doing a panel. I was moderating a panel, and I think this was at the um, uh, software development conference that used to be a big deal. And, um, and I knew personally everybody on the panel, including the last person who I had co-authored a book with. But there's a thing that can happen where some part of your brain goes, mm -mm, not going to be helpful right now, like the part that remembers names. And so I'm going down and it's like, I'm totally aware that queue is empty. I do not know the name of my co-author right now. It's just gone. And, and your, just, uh, your other thread took over all the resources. And I, I think it's more insidious than that. There's, you know, there's some little kid in there going, no, not doing this anymore or something like that. Anyway, so I get to the end and I just have to explain my way out, my way out of it. Cause I, you know, the name was gone. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I, I had had experiences on um, stage. Oh, no. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. I think okay. it's okay. I, sometimes the squiggly lines don't work. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, I had had other experiences on stage, I think, by that time where you go, oh, I might not remember my lines. And, uh, and you just have to let it pass, you know, because otherwise, if you start freaking out, if, if you attach to it, you're, you're done. You just got to stay in the moment. I'm sure James, James has probably spoken more than I have because you're just, it's kind of your job. Yeah. Oh, so much stress and, <laughs> and involved in many presentations and like moments before like nothing's working and yeah oh right because you're always trying to do live demos yeah that's yeah. like the worst why do i do that I I do, well myself. it's effective when you see it it's it's very effective that's why you do it but it's more fun too yeah because <laughs> but anything, things can go wrong and it's improv yeah, it is improv and sometimes it does go wrong yeah, and it, it, there's a lot of stress in that. Well, and I think you've done it enough and had it go wrong enough that you go, yeah, things go wrong and, you know, you deal with it. It's not like, oh, no, what if something goes wrong? Everything will crash and I'll be left yeah. alone. Yeah. I, I've wanted to wear a heart rate monitor when I, for when, when I present, because I'm sure there are definitely moments where something's going wrong or whatever, where my heart rate just goes through the roof and be funny to chart that. I should put it on screen live while I present and then it would just be like, 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 yeah, then everyone could see like, Ooh, things are getting serious. So yeah. I think you might get into some um, vicious feedback loops if you did that's that. Right, yeah, <laughs> that's possible, true. That, I, the, the visualizing of my current heart rate could increase my heart rate. Because you've, right. I mean, you could just like wear a, a smartwatch or something, yeah. and then yeah, yeah, I think you should totally do that. I love this fun. idea. Yeah. So well, I think... luckily, I haven't had to present on a stage for a while, and so <laughs> we'll see the next time that happens. But. I like presenting on stages. I do too. I'm so tired of virtual conferences. Yeah, you They're don't exhausting. get that whole immersion experience. Yeah. So yeah, fun, fun, uh, lots of fun stories and experiences there, but it's it's stressful. I'm glad I haven't had to have that stress for a while. Now I just have like a three-year-old to give me replacement stress. <laughs> oh, the joys of parenting. My my son is 14 now. And um, this afternoon I'm taking him to get his first vaccine. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, because yeah. I approved it down to 12. So Yes. So nice. I'm hmm. very happy about that. Awesome. Bet. Yeah. I will bet. Um. Julie, did you know that Bruce and I are working on a book with Bill? I know you've probably met Bill. Oh yeah, I know Bill. Yeah, 
Yeah. Out. So we're working on a Scala 3 Zio book. And uh, so that's been a lot of fun working on that. But uh, Scala 3 was just released today. So you said that a couple of weeks well, ago. Well, it was, was weird. That? Like a couple of weeks ago, they were like, let's have a release party. Oh. And so we kind of celebrated the release of Scala 3 a couple of weeks ago. But it turns out today is the actual day when the bits are available and live. So. Um, but Zio has not yet been released for the Scala 3 release. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that'll happen well, I'll soon. set my uh, watch for 2026 when, let's say, Netflix folks get to use it. <laughs> because when you have infrastructure... Uh, Spark, is, and Spark is pretty uh, laggy on update into new yeah, versions of Scala. I'm so. pretty sure that there's still stuff in 2.11 and maybe 2.12 is what the, the state is. Yeah. yeah. That's I thought it would be um, interesting, um, maybe to because I kind of just went straight into some of some of the the deeper side of the machine learning. But I thought it'd be interesting to like approach the question of infrastructure for data science from the perspective of a data scientist, mm. um, because I think that might motivate like why it's so difficult. So let's let's give this a try. Um, yeah. I think I, I described data I'm science interested. like having a pretty um, wide range of backgrounds. So imagine you're in a PhD program. Um, you know, you're working on some various projects. And I think the question is, well, what tools do you have at your disposal? You probably have a laptop. Maybe you have a machine under your desk, like maybe if you need to use GPUs. Um, and you're probably going to be working pretty independently. And so, you know, the first thing you might install is Jupyter Notebooks. Um, You can like install Jupyter self-contained, you know, on your laptop, on your desktop, maybe, um, you know, on a cloud instance, but that might be pushing it. Um, And then I guess the other question would be like, where would the data come from? Like you might- Yeah, where do you get the data? Do you have access to it? Is it production data? Is it obfuscated in some way? Is it- Yeah. Yeah. So like the easiest thing to do is look for existing, you know, data sources. So like a lot of papers are written on these like um, very uh, popular uh, data sources. So like the most popular one is like called MNIST, which is- um, a collection of handwritten digits that like Ian LeCun built this, this data set, I don't know, a long, long time ago. Um, and so it's kind of like the, the standard for a lot of the, the computer vision type um, research. Or you might look at like Kaggle um, to find like a data set. Um, and then if you have resources, you're probably going to try to partner with an organization. I mean, it could be, you know, within the university, it could be trying to run a study and you have to do a lot of work to collect that data. Um, and you're probably going to end up putting it in some sort of data format on your machine, like maybe a CSV file or something, right? I mean, it could be as basic as that, right? Yeah, um, you got to have it in some parsable form. Right. Um, and you, what, what your goal is, is I want to write the paper and I want to publish the paper. Right. And so all I, you need to do is, you know, really get um, things going in your Jupyter notebook, um, you know, assuming the data isn't huge. Um, and then you get your results and you write your paper. Right. Maybe you have to, um, if you have large data, maybe you need to like get a student account on AWS and like run a cluster, right? But but the the short of it is nobody else probably has to make that machine learning model run, make that code run. And so then you graduate and you take a job at a company. Um, and so the question is, okay, how do I do all this stuff at this company? Right. Well, the company probably has some kind of data warehouse, you know, maybe a hive store, for example. You know, again, if you're on the cloud, I'm most familiar with AWS. So maybe it's like sitting on S3 somewhere and then you're not working on your laptop anymore. You're trying to work on like a cloud workstation. And like, how do I get the data? How do I get a cloud workstation? How do I get it set up with all my dependencies? How do I get the data onto that workstation? And then when the data gets too big, like how would I sort of send that off to a cluster, <laughs> right? And then um, 
once that happens, you know, my colleague needs to get the same results or we need to get this model into production. Like it has to train, you know, every day. And I have this whole pipeline that I wrote, you know, I wrote a script, but like, how do I get it running, you know, every day? So, <laughs> yep. um, I guess All when of a sudden you, look, you have to learn Git. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. So when you look from the perspective of a data science, it's just um, like you can start to see like so much infrastructure is needed, um, you know, to get the job done. Like once you land in, in a company um, and this is not something that necessarily you're exposed to, you know, at the university. So I've um, seen some companies the way that they deal with this is that they have the data scientists and they use Python and Jupyter notebooks, but then the, the way to get that, that, uh, that code into a production pipeline and, you know, all that kind of stuff is that then an engineer takes the Python code, rewrites it into Scala, and then it works against the distributed, like spark system whatever and then that engineer knows how to do git knows how to like you know deal with cicd deal with like all the kind of engineering problems so there 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 are a number of companies that actually will just take the data scientist python code and have an engineer rewrite it uh, into the engineering system which is certainly not ideal but but there are different concerns on each side you know there, with production there's concerns about um performance and you know different things that that the data scientist doesn't necessarily have to care about so yeah but the, the potential benefits are so significant that having a whole person or people as a buffer makes sense because if you can get those answers that could make a huge difference in your company. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's expand on that um, setup a little bit, right? I mean, if you're talking about, let's say, a feature engineering pipeline um, that the data scientists wrote in Python, one of the primary concerns is going to be, um, is the data coming out the other end when you re-implement in Scala going to be the same as the data that came out in Python? And there's just all kinds of tricky issues that can come up um, when it comes to that re-implementation. You know, how do you gain confidence that the like resulting model is actually going to um, perform the same way that it did in a research setting? Right. So that's one of the challenges. And then um, another challenge is um, research is an ongoing um, endeavor. And so just because you had your version one, that you had that engineer productionized, well, how do you get the version two out? And how do you actually compare whether the version two is performing? A-B you know, testing the new, yeah. One. Yeah. Um, so, so, so actually this is the very problem um, that, um, you know, that the team that I've been on at Netflix has been working on for the past several years. Um, so there's all of these problems when it comes to sort of these lower layers of the stack, you know, the data, the compute, the build, the dependencies. Um, we built a system called Metaflow. And when I say we, I mean the team. <laughs> I hired them. They built it. Um, the system called Metaflow. And Metaflow really tries to wrap all of these concerns um, so that the data scientists can interact, you know, through a really simple Python interface. Um, basically, what you can do with Metaflow is create um, a directed acyclic graph in code. So you just write a Python class that has um, functions, and each function is like considered a step in that DAG or a node in that DAG. And then you use um, decorators to kind of link those um, nodes together. And so what Metaflow does is it takes care of, oh, well, how do I actually execute this thing? Um, and and the, one of the main um, you know, benefits here is that you can, Metaflow has sort of this built-in um, sort of DAG orchestrator that'll just run it on your machine like any old Python script. But then the beauty is you can also run um, a command line, um, you know, uh, a command that will take that DAG um, and really um, map it onto our production grade um, scheduler. And so as a data scientist, 
if you're, once you have your prototype going, you can actually say, no, I'm actually going to get it into production myself. And it's going to train, you know, on this schedule and it's going to produce either a newly trained model or new scores, you know, on, on that schedule. Um, and then for things like, oh, we need to live score, like the, the pre-generated scores are not good enough. Um, there's also a way that you can basically specify a scoring function that just simply calls the model. And then the um, what's called model hosting service will just wrap like a REST uh, service around that for you. So as a data scientist, you don't have to learn, I don't know, how do I muck with like Nginx settings or like, you know, set up JSON serialization. Yeah, exactly. So none of that has to, to map to, to be the, the issue. So huh. for quite a few um, problems now um, with Metaflow, data scientists can really self-serve and like take the extra like re-implementation, the engineer um, out of the loop. Hmm. That's interesting because you you really did have to lay all of that groundwork in order for metaflow to make sense to me <laughs> you, had to, you had to say oh here's the problem we're trying to solve and and, yeah. it, and it's like oh yeah that is a problem and then it's oh here's how we solved it that's <laughs> that's impressive and but somehow you were able to i don't know prove that this class representing a directed acyclic graph was um one to one and onto or something like that you know that it covered the the solution space yeah and i mean most of these are pretty simple so generally mm -hmm. it's a very linear graph um and then you might have like a parallel fan out so like a really basic example would be something called like a hyperparameter grid search where um Long story short, that when you're when you're doing machine learning models, um, there's these things called hyperparameters that kind of um, that help control the architecture of the eventual model. So when you say neural networks, one of those hyperparameters is like how many layers should we put in that neural network, um, and so. There's no um, uh, science uh, that says, well, these are the hyperparameters you should have. You kind of have to discover which ones are going to work best. And so being able to actually train many very, very similar models in parallel is important. So, um, so you might you know, do a fan out um, to just parallel train a bunch of models and then sort of fan back in to go, hey, which model performed the best? So, the so as, an, as an example, you, you could have in your kind of deployment pipeline or whatever, you could say, all right, I'm going to train this model uh, with 10 layers. I'm going to train this model with 100 layers, this model with 1,000 layers. And then you, <laughs> how many, I don't know how many layers are normal in a normal neural network. But so then you'll take, you'll take those different, different models that are created and then and then test them in some way and right. determine like okay like like the one the one that we trained at 10 was good enough and so let's just go yeah. with that one right Whatever. yeah yeah or like um learning rate is another type of hyperparameter like how fast should we move along the gradient because if you move too fast you might actually miss a, an optima um if you move too slowly it'll take forever to converge so there's all kinds of like and I vaguely remember at one point there was people working on using machine learning to provide the 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 different um, hyperparameters, yeah. and and so that it would be machine learning like deciding what the optimal machine learning parameters yeah. were. That is a, definitely a thing. Um, there's all kinds of like meta hacks, um, to make machine learning better. I'll just tell you the one that, that I just learned about this week coming out of Uber. Um, it's really fascinating. So one of the, you know, um, there's, you know, those, those memes of like, what, what, um, other, well, what my family thinks I do, oh, yeah. like what, you know, what the my TV mom thinks I do, what, what, what I my friends do. think I do. What I actually so it's know. like the, what I, you know, what I, what the everybody else thinks I do is like this big white, you know, blackboard with all this math and it's very complicated. And like what I actually do is like import scikit-learn or whatever. Um, so like, um, you know, one of the problems uh, or, or the quote unquote solutions, um, you know, when it comes to building models now, especially with neural networks is like, 
let's just throw every single feature at this model that we possibly can. And like, you can get sort of very, very small improvements. At some point there's diminishing returns, right? Problem is um, that's expensive and it's slow at a certain point. And so Uber um, came up with this way to look, use information theory to figure out which features are gonna um, be the most um, impactful on a model. So they look for um, not only a high degree of mutual information between the feature and, or sorry, yeah, the feature and then the, um, the label or the, the truth, but they also want a low amount of um, mutual information between features themselves. Because if one feature predicts another feature, like the second one is not going to be useful, but if they don't predict each other, then they're more likely to inform the model. So there's all kinds of these like, you know, meta tricks, um, huh. you know, built up um, around all these, <laughs> around sort of the limitations, I would say, of, um, you know, That's machine how we create models. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's wild. Just the whole space is, is, so quickly evolved and and is gaining so much maturity so quickly and so i have two questions one is okay so netflix knows when i pause and when i binge and you know your machine learning models should be able to figure out the parts of a movie or a show or something where I get uncomfortable and I don't want to watch it for a while, or maybe I never come back to it. Get bored so or, it seems yeah. to me that at some point in the future, you should be able to automatically generate the ideal script. <laughs> so that's, that's my first question. The second question is, will I ever be able to get a robotic vacuum cleaner that works? <laughs> Um, I mean, on the first question, um, that's really not the goal at all. Um, like, be, I would say, you know, there's so much to the creative element um, when it comes to content that um, we're more focused on how do you sort of maximize the effectiveness um, and the creative excellence, right, of that creative process versus like, let's reduce it down to an algorithm. Because first of all, I don't think we can do it. And um, second of all, I just don't think that it would lead to amazing content. <laughs> so that's definitely not a goal. Wasn't um, there, there was um, some attempts at, at having AI write songs, like songs are a bit easier yeah. to to create. Um, so, but I've never well, listened was, to one. I don't know if it's any good. I'm, it was I'm, working from popular songs. So it was actually generating songs by taking pieces of popular songs and kind of remixing them sort of. Yeah. And yeah, it, it actually came up with some good things and I'm sure that'll get better because, you know, you write a catchy song and you can make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think with, especially with popular music, um, it's funny. My pandemic um, hobby is like picking the guitar back up again after 20 years. Nice. And um, just like, cause I was much younger when I first learned, so I didn't make all these connections. Um, but like, there's only a few chord progressions <laughs> in popular music. And so it's probably much more plausible to write, you know, songs that kind of sound good. Um, so, or, yeah. or it could be a cobot kind of thing where where you have a you create a system that helps you write songs. You mm. could. I could fact. see that. Yeah. Now tell me, do you have a robot vacuum cleaner? I, I got a robot vacuum several years ago, and it's like it. It didn't understand. Oh, I mean, power cords was going. Nobody told me about power cords. I don't know what to do with this thing. Or a, if you had stairs that turned part way down, it would just it would just find them and fall down them. You you have to put up all these barriers, and it's easier just to vacuum your floor than it is to screw around with the robot vacuum. Oh, I think this is bringing us full circle, Bruce, because think about, you know, well, I actually don't know what's the technology inside of these, if there's machine learning or if it's like a heuristic model. But assuming there's machine learning, 
Um, well, they had to ship this robot vacuum cleaner with something in it, right? Some kind of model. And the question is, what were the conditions under which that model was trained? Did that include stairs with a turn in it? And could it figure out a policy for navigating that? Um, and then I guess, you know, are they um, a fancy company that would like pull all the data from your home? And would you want that, by the way? Um, uh, you know, all of the different vacuum cleaning excursions. And then would you want it to train a new model um, and then upload that to your vacuum cleaner? <laughs> right. And, and maybe I just didn't let it fall down the stairs enough times. That's right. <laughs> you know, that was my, not my patients may not have, may, may not have. Protective vacuum cleaner dad. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, but then again, you have this kind of, oh, if we're dealing with gravity here, we could damage the unit. So we need something more severe to keep that from happening. Yeah. But, it's i think its algorithm was just well drive around record where you are and if you run into a problem mark it on your map but see it would like it would still tr it, it couldn't understand power cords so the i think the instructions when i actually looked at them they said well you'll you know you'll need to secure your power cords and if you have freestanding right you, you have to do all these things to adapt to the needs of the vacuum cleaner. And that's not why I bought it. <laughs> it's supposed to meet my needs. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. yeah, so it's it's in a drawer someplace and I, yeah. I don't know what to do with it. It keeps trying to get out too, it's weird. This is a it's, a, it's a problem that I have. I'm afraid to do experiments because I don't know what to do with the crap that's left behind when the experiment fails. I've got an e-bike, a vacuum cleaner, and then a bunch of other things that if I hadn't bought them already and I knew that they were going to fail, I wouldn't buy them. But now I've got these things. Well, in Crestview, don't you just put them out on the curb and people take them? You do. But this, I mean, my parents grew up in the Depression, and so it's like there's this little voice in the back of your head saying, oh, you, you could get money for that or, or something, you know. And so putting them out on the curb is it's like, oh, it takes some take some effort i wonder what would happen if we unleashed your vacuum just in town just like let it just roam around and try to try to clean all of town have dog poop smeared all over the place <laughs> <laughs> yeah it reminds me of that story about the person who woke up to their house just covered in dog poop, dog from, poop the, yes. from the robot right. Oh. right yeah see that yeah that's the kind of thing they're so dumb and so underpowered too, you know. So we need we need batteries that allow us to have bigger uh, smart vacuum cleaners, yeah. more powerful ones, and then it's like we'll get that. And what's yeah, interesting is like like yeah, the vacuum cleaners are pretty dumb, and who knows if they actually have machine learning um, in the or not. But I, I was thinking about how much of the technology that we touch every day now is backed by AI versus five or 10 years ago. And it's changed pretty dramatically. Yes. But, but um, I think it's probably changed more dramatically on where we touch tech companies versus where we touch, like, because Netflix can afford really high salary data scientists, machine learning experts, all that. Whereas Roomba, maybe they just, they're not they're not willing to pay a hundred engineers a million dollars a year or whatever it is to like actually do this stuff right yeah so they can say well it's sort of like artificial intelligence so let's say that it is <laughs> that's right. that's kind of my experience i'll give you another when you talk about proliferation another wild example um so I went over to Santana Row in San Jose a couple nights ago, um, and they have installed these, um, you know, sort of signs that say how many parking spots are, are left. Um, and now every row will have like green or red lights, depending on if there are parking spots available nice. and there are cameras. <laughs> and I guess my, naively I thought about, well, could you implement it by sort of having, um, I don't know, a classifier that just looks at, is there a car in that space or not? 
that was kind of my naive um, idea about how it works. And then I get down to the first floor of the garage and I notice this little sign and um, it explains what's happening. They take oh. a picture of your license plate. Uh, and so they are actually tracking license plates in the garage. And then they're explaining, well, who has access to this data? Um, people at the company. And here's all the training that they have to, to handle this data. So and they don't actually look at the car spots. What they do is they just track, okay, like, this car came in, this car came out. And so that's just as... Yes. identification of in and yeah. out versus, and there's, versus there's this possible, spot is actually occupied. There's possible scary implications um, to that, um, but supposedly it's only being used for this purpose of parking. Only for good. But, but I mean, I'm, there's no clear warning, you know, going in, your license plate is going to be red um, if you come into this garage. Yeah. So if you're in a high-speed chase and you duck into a garage to try and escape the uh, pursuers, they may be able They're to gonna find discover you. you. Well, and based on all the traffic cameras that now watch yeah. <laughs> record your license plate. So this, inform- I'm sure this, I mean, not to go down a dark hole, but I'm sure you could subpoena such information uh, if you need to be. Yeah. But if it was on the blockchain, then everything would be okay. It yes. all be better. Well, That's what I've heard. Um, solve every everything. Yeah. That is my yeah. understanding. Even That's like naming told. and caching problems are solved by That's the blockchain. Right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it works, but I do know it's the solution to everything. Yep. I actually you- saw somebody say basically that uh, recently, and of course they were a blockchain company. <laughs> The they said the they block- didn't know how it worked no 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 they said the prior thing which is yes <laughs> block put everything on the blockchain all of your data privacy issues will go away uh, no. No. all of your money issues will also go away right buy yeah. some dogecoin today mm-hmm. <laughs> yep yay yeah. capitalism mm, that's fun um Wow. Uh, I've been educated, as always, with Julie mm-hmm. on many different things. Um, i trying to think if there's any other questions I have since we have Julie on, and she's such an expert in kind of everything. Well, uh, can you talk more about your book? Maybe you've talked about it on previous episodes. We did, yeah, just on the last one is where we went into a lot of depth on it. Uh, we're we're uh, kind of calling it prep. <laughs> <laughs> which is still just a joke but oh the, i think the, people the like prep, that we're the prep methodology I I, i'm gonna say that should be on the cover somewhere but i don't know that that would be the actual title right yes yes yeah. um which stands for performant reliable expressive and productive Ooh. james yeah. is very pleased with himself that he came up with this acronym yeah. Whether it actually applies to the book or not is, is going to be a whole other question, but but that's kind of what we're going for. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're going to solve the, the, all of the current software engineering problems with this book so that we can then move on to the next level of software engineering problems. Which sounds like it's going to be machine learning. Yeah. yeah. It's like the new reactive. Maybe I'll just, a closing thought is... Um, I don't think you can build awesome platforms if you don't think about people in particular, the people that are using the platform and like what's their whole experience and the way you describe prep um, sounds like implicitly you're thinking about what uh, are the, the entirety of the concerns that, that a software developer, you know, needs to think about. Yeah. And people are the hard part. Kind of. And, and what are the problems that, we're really encountering, I mean, the problem is that a lot of these issues, people go, oh, well, parallelism is hard. And that's the end of it. It's like, yeah, it has all these problems. And that's that's where we stop. Rather than saying, oh, how would we solve that? And that's what, I mean, we're not solving the problems. We're just trying to explain how the problems are solved using these improved technologies. Um, so it's, yeah, we're, we're, 
we're trying to deal with the actual problems that people encounter rather than just the usual uh, approach to concurrency is just to say, oh, well, you know, you start these processes and then somehow you have to stop them. And that's part of the art is, is or, you know, any number of different issues like, well, they're inherent problems that can't be solved by themselves. And, you know, what this other system does is it says, no, we should actually change things to solve that problem because individual programmers can't. You know, it's just yeah. with with the systems that you have now, they can't. It's like saying, I'm driving down the hill and my brakes are out, uh, and that's a problem, and we'll stop talking about it right now. Kind of. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's like, well, you just have to steer carefully so you don't run into anything when your brakes are out. That's, it's, yeah, I'd say that's a really good so analogy. So maybe at the STFU conference, sorry, the STFU unconference, or no, that's repetitive. Um, anyways, at STFU, we will have a prep workshop or something. Oh. Try out some of the content. That sounds like a really good idea. That'd be fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe. hopefully Julie can come to that. Mm -hmm. That's in August, right? It yeah. is. It is August Julie asked about the 15th dates, through the 21st. That includes your arrival and departure days. It sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully we see you at that. And um, yeah, it's been too long since we have mm -hmm. seen you, but it's good to see you virtually um, and and learn from you as always. Yes. Well, this was delightful. Yes, it was very <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thanks, Julie.